dropped out of the second, watched the third, which does actually suggest in one episode that the Queen is a psychopath. So, you know, <laughs> there's a bit of balance in there, maybe. Mm. Yeah, it's... But as soon as people understand what Netflix's business model is, which is dry subscription, it's a startup. It's still a startup, and it's yeah. the main streaming service or or like it was kind of like first out of the gate and that managed to keep going mm. but i don't but this is the point with netflix like are they going to burst or are they going to end up sort of finding some sustainability but they are still great at like churning out you know in terms of their originals i mean it's just as chaotic as some of the ensembles that emily wears herself you're like okay there's a lot <laughs> going on here it sort of works. It doesn't quite all fit together, but I can see you're trying. So, ah, ooh la la, plus a change. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they clearly are operating on this kind of cobbled together thing where every year it's like, okay, if we can produce like two shows that will get a bunch of Emmys yeah. and one show that will get memed to absurdity, but will be able to keep reproduce will kind of like keep renewing it for you know three seasons and then move on to the next thing then that's kind of enough for, to keep them in the conversation and yeah you're right like it was so silly seeing that response like oh emily paris emily paris uh is getting renewed but you know they cancelled glow and you're kind of like well not enough people watched glow like not enough people talked about Glow when it was on. Plenty of people, you know, did. You know, people loved it and thought it was a great show. But you know, you didn't have that like saturation level that you got for Emily and Perry, where it was like so many people were hate watching it. And ultimately, like it's the exact same economic logic that lies behind you know film websites that will publish any like terrible take going because a click is a click regardless of whether or not it's someone sharing it saying this was a very thoughtful you know dissection you know this was a very thoughtful piece about why women can't possibly understand why goodfellas is good or people being like this is the worst fucking thing i've ever read and just to point out i would be in the second camp for that uh, that particular article <laughs> because i remember reading that and thinking this guy i don't know if this person's ever spoken to a woman it seems that they're, they're dissecting a very alien breed in their assessment of whether people can like goodfellas but you know that's the same basic premise that netflix work on is like as long as people are watching it as long as people watch whatever amount of an episode they can count towards their metrics and that's all they can really they really care about and that's what's going to ensure uh, emily and paris a at least three-year <laughs> lifespan before they think that's as much value as we're getting out of it or maybe that it'll be the one that you know defies and ends up running for 30 seasons which i mean honestly that'd be impressive just to see where they would get by the end of that by <laughs> having to write the 300th episode explaining why she's still in paris and still doesn't understand it. <laughs> yeah, still still hasn't learnt the language. Still keeps going onto the wrong floor. Oh, the, <laughs> oh, the comic mileage they got out of that. Yeah, wow. It probably, by the end of it, resembles something like House of Fools or Beef yeah. House, you know, where it's yeah. just kind of like, this is, this is beyond absurd and doesn't really seem to... It understands, like, the idea of a television show but has no interest <laughs> in, like trying to deliver one it would just be these weird collections of catchphrases which honestly i think i would be quite interested to see it's, it's the same thing that kind of fascinates me about 
anger management having to produce like a 90 episode second season because of that syndication deal they had where i just became really fascinated by what does what does year four of the anger management writer's room look like where everyone's just kind of like having to grind out a script for this like awful awful sitcom that seemed like a good idea but only like a vaguely good idea when it started which i think also i think sam simon talked about that like when he was on wtf because he like consulted on it and i remember that that was the thing that really fascinated me he just <laughs> made it sound like an absolute nightmare of a place to work as a professional comedy writer well and there's <laughs> of course there's <laughs> not many of those <laughs> mm. um i sort of wonder though like in complete speculationville whether emily in paris was like the producers for netflix like right, okay. it was their springtime for hitler in germany and <laughs> it's actually wildly successful. They're like, oh, fuck, you mean we need to keep making like Ozark and Stranger Things? Oh, God. Thought this was going <laughs> to finally give us some rest, but no, here we are. Mm, yeah, now we have to keep like buying Korean dramas and kind of like releasing them. And then one of them turns out to be like a massive hit for some reason. And we can't quite understand why. Yeah, it's almost like people have uh, varied tastes. Mm. And uh, you should sort of serve all of your subscribers by giving them variety, not just the one thing that all of them pull in and watch. Um, and maybe yeah. just don't spend so much fucking money on keeping friends on. Yeah, God, yeah. Uh, which uh, didn't even last that long. No. No, I mean, and this is it, like, I mean, Netflix hasn't really been quite going long enough to have one show that lasts for 10 years. Again, if it's mm. Emily in Paris. Emilaris in Paris, then, you know, it could happen. But in terms of, it's kind of amazing that anything reaches four seasons, let alone like five. Um, mm. And I don't know whether the the bubble will, will break for Emily, but I, I want, I, I do need more. <laughs> I didn't realize, <laughs> but yeah, uh, come see, come sir. Mm. Yeah, you definitely want it, to, like you said, to remain pure. You want it to be. Uh, unfortunate associations aside, you want it to be trapped in the closet one through six, not <laughs> trapped in the closet seven through twenty-four. <laughs> in other news, here we have kind of a little bit of a follow-up to a story we talked about last week, which was Johnny Depp uh, stepping down from his role as Grindelwald in the Fantastic Beasts series, which was uh, this week it was announced one that uh, Mads Mikkelsen will be replacing him in the role, which definitely feels like a step up, although the foundations of that series kind of seem fairly rotten at this point so i'm not sure how much just putting in a better actor is going to fix the problem but also that uh, like the animaniacs uh, johnny depp had a pay for play contract and he was able oh he was he got paid his entire salary even though he's not going to be in the movie so uh bad actor bad person <laughs> good choice good good uh taste in lawyers it seems Yes, absolutely watertight in terms of that contract, isn't it? So it just sounds like the kind of hollowness of a complete lack of any kind of justice or um, mm. consequences within the current system that we have, right? Because I am one of those people who was like, oh, good, I'm glad he's not going to be in this thing anymore, but we'll still be paid. So it's like, oh, so I don't have to suffer watching him he doesn't i mean if it's just his ego in terms of being like oh i don't get to be the weird wizard and my face splashed on posters everywhere 
but he's still got his like Sauvage contract with Dior and is at every bus stop like mm. rolling up his sleeves. And I'm like, wow, if I were his publicist after domestic abuse, I'd be like, ah, oh, can we can we take one from the B roll? Can we take something where he's just like lying down in some sand, maybe? <laughs> but no. So again, it's kind of like, oh, what what good has actually been done here in terms of like I mean, I guess it's good that he's not getting the exposure, but it feels quite hollow. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And there's also that real sense of like, you know, oh, like, yeah, like a, a better actor who by all accounts seems to be a, a, a nicer person is going to be taking on the role, but it's still going to be in a series written by like a notorious anti-trans activist, essentially. Oh, yeah. Like t- turf doesn't even seem to be uh, enough to encompass a lot of, what jk rowling does these days and like you know someone taking a role in that project doesn't like necessarily speak well of them even if even someone like you know Matt mickleton who through his work particularly on hannibal i think has got a huge you know lgbtq fan base like i think it has to be considered a real disappointment for a lot of those people that he would agrees to be involved in that franchise at this point where so so many people have soured on rowling and her uh, her associated works and rightly rightly so as well because you know she's uh she's not a great person and she has actively hurt hurt a lot of people's lives yes she has and knowingly because she's not a you know thing is a lot of bigots aren't stupid she knows exactly what she's doing in terms of strategy and when she puts her head above the parapet and the kind of most recent stuff that she was saying and the timeline for the Gender Recognition Act consultation in Scotland, like, Mm. she knows what she's doing. And it's just strange to me that as someone who set up a charity for survivors of domestic abuse and who was so concerned about women's rights that she actually came out defending Johnny Depp and and him still being mm, in yeah. the series. <sighs> yeah. And I do I do feel for her, but I think she just needs to I think she needs to go into therapy and have her phone taken away from her. Yeah, I think that's that's probably true for a lot of people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I say as someone who uh, deleted the Twitter app off my phone this week. Good not for, for you. Not for any particular mental health reasons. It was just, you know, you get those you get those updates, like your screen time every week. And like, they was, they was starting to creep up quite high. I thought, I could probably stand not to constantly have that kind of like link to the internet for a little while. Yeah. So taking it off for a few weeks. And so that now if I have a, a thought that I think is so crystalline and brilliant, you know, I have to reach over and uh, fire up the old laptop. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. The hell site as opposed to the hell app. <laughs> so we'll go on to the main topic for this week, which is kind of rep companies, I guess. Uh, it's kind of like the, 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 the way that I kind of described it. So like directors who have like a stable of actors that they like to draw from, who like they like to collaborate with, frequently and this was because as uh, i've mentioned on the show a few times i've been watching a lot of early spike lee films uh recently kind of going through some of the ones that i've uh re-watching some that i hadn't seen for a while and watching some of his early ones i'd never seen before and it got me thinking about 
directors who do like to, to, to draw on the same actors time and again, which he did in his early days. You know, like if you look at the cast of Do the Right Thing and the cast of Jungle Fever, there's a huge amount of overlap. He obviously worked with uh, Samuel Jackson quite a few times on those movies in various roles. Uh, Jean- Giancarlo Esposito, uh, Ossie Davis and uh, Ruby D in both of them. And the, how there's this like interesting frisson there, I think, where he's kind of like bringing these actors in, giving them different roles often each time, often very contrasting to their previous roles, you know, like in Do the Right Thing, uh, Ossie Davis and Ruby D kind of play these venerable kind of figures of this, uh, you know, this Brooklyn neighborhood, but they are, you know, like he's kind of like an inveterate drunk and everyone likes him, but they're, they kind of uh, uh, tolerate him more than anything else. And then in the next in uh, Jungle Fever, he's like this sort of authoritarian pastor who's like the father of Wesley Snipes and uh, uh, and Samuel Jackson's character. And there's this kind of very whole whole thing where he's very much a parallel of like Marvin Gaye's dad, which plays into the story in a kind of a major way. And uh, so I thought it would be interesting to kind of like talk about other directors who kind of do that sort of thing. And, and what I kind of have come to crystallize as the difference between comfort and challenge in directors and their approaches to this because there's clearly something very comforting about working with the same people over and over and developing those kind of partnerships but also you can definitely see like frequent collaborators where you look at them and say oh these people like working together because they're constantly challenging each other to try and do something different Mm. I think there's kind of a almost like theatre kind of vibe that mm-hmm. I think you bring forward really well there, Ed, to say, like, you know, a rep, like to have a repertory and to sort of keep coming back to people and the kind of collaborations that are really fruitful. And, you know, funnily enough, the first one that sprang to my mind and one that I really miss is Joanna Hogg and Tom Hiddleston. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because he has been, he was in her first three films, Unrelated, um, Archipelago, saying that right ed i always archipelago i've always said archipelago but it's also not one that i think i've heard said out loud much very much a i read it all the time so i think yeah yeah, it seems like it's right maybe it's have you met my friend archie palago um and (laughs) uh exhibition he uh, but even though he's not a main character in that but he plays quite a um important role even though his screen time is very short not actually dissimilar to uh, rich daiwadi in uh in the souvenir sorry mm. that kind of and i think what joanna hogg does really well is have these very when she has kind of you know exhibition and the souvenir which are sort of laser focused observations of couples when it really does seem to be sort of like a two-hander um with the woman sort of more forefront as the protagonist and then you know, the other people, the sort of ancillary people who sort of manage to actually come through and, and break into that very intense bond always mm. have a lot to say. But this was Tom Hiddleston back in the day when, again, I think he was doing a lot of theatre and starting out sort of pre-low-key and um, everything kind of, you know, and pre-I Love TS and, and him becoming like a mega, mega celeb. Becoming a Tumblr staple. Yeah, exactly. Um, the face that launched a thousand gifts. <laughs> and I think he's so good 
in those films. And I love Joanna Hogg's work in terms of, I think there's something quite wry about their collaboration because he is one of the poshest people <laughs> you could ever hope to see. And my favourite of, of Joanna Hogg's is when she has that very kind of, the kind of distance, but like, like that probing from a distance of so-called high respectful society you mm. know and that kind of middle to upper middle class mores and Archie Pelago is like absolutely like cheek bitingly on on point for that mm. like I still think of that sort of dinner scene you know or is it when, they, when they're out for lunch in the restaurant and just like the yeah the like it broke my passive aggressive ometer um, which is saying something because I grew up in Hampshire. <laughs> um, and I think it it sort of showed a level of self-awareness for Tom Hiddleston to work with her and to keep going back and working with her. Kind of mm. being like, it's shit, isn't it? Like people aren't connecting on a human level and they're really isolated from each other. And I think it's also quite rare to have, you know, because it's still sadly very rare to have women directors with a big body of work mm, yeah. and to have the chance to sort of work with people again and again but also to have that sort of woman director male actor collaboration because a lot of other ones I've been looking at are kind of I mean I love like again in, in that sort of like um picking apart kind of racking hands with guilt but still incredibly privileged like Nicole Holofcener and Catherine Keener like yeah. a beautiful combination but very rare again to find women who aren't the sort of the actor you know, mm. in that, like to to have a woman as director or to have that that kind of collaborative relationship together. So I think, yeah, Joanna Hogg and Tom Hiddleston is actually pretty unique. Yeah, Joanna Hogg, I think, is a is a great shout for that. Yeah, I really love yeah, when you talk about her use of like distance. I was just thinking about the scene in Unrelated where Tom Hiddleston is getting chewed out by his dad, and oh, it's gosh. all happening off screen, yeah. and everyone is kind of like sat around the pool while they can hear the shouting happening and everyone's just kind of like awkwardly hoping that you know they're not going to be the ones who get called upon next i think that is really you know like excellent filmmaking i think they as two people who were kind of obviously she'd been around for for a long time mm. before she started making movies but two people who i think were early on in their feature film making career i think they really did kind of like bring a lot out of each other and I think that's that's something that you see a lot with some of these other kind of like filmmakers I had on my list of people who have that early collaboration that I think provides them with challenge because they can work with people and they can try different things but also kind of gives them like a step up so if you look at Spike Lee and his early work with Denzel Washington you know like they made like three films together in fairly close proximity and then they didn't work together again until um inside man and i feel like there's a, a real great energy to their early works together to uh mo better blues to malcolm x and to he got game where i think they really push each other and they really are like trying to rise to the occasion of working with each other on, on those movies and that then i think was a big thing in allowing spike lee to kind of like become the kind of filmmaker who could go and work with other actors and you know to kind of like broaden his pool of people he would work with you know like 
having someone like Denzel to work with to make Malcolm X, I think must be a huge kind of like boost to your confidence as a filmmaker, even as someone who by that point had already made like one of the great American films of like the mm. last like 40 years or something in, in Do the Right Thing. And also, you know, like the, the, the big one, if you're talking about recent like collaborations of those sports, you know, like someone like Scorsese and De Niro, yeah. where clearly two young hungry guys who were kind of coming from the same the same kind of milieu more or less although obviously i think de niro uh was a, a little more directly conte- uh, connected to the art world initially than scorsese was but two people who i think through their collaborations and trying all of these different things certainly in their work in like the, the 70s you can really see that again if, if we're talking about the the difference between comfort and challenge mm. like there's not really much comfort in the movies they were making together. Yeah. Like if you look at um, Taxi Driver or Mean Streets, obviously they're very confrontational movies, but then also like there's such a huge challenge involved in then going from Taxi Driver to New York, New York, where you're saying like, yeah, we're going to try and do a, this kind of movie that's very influenced by 30s musicals and Vincent Minnelli movie, uh, melodramas. Uh, but also we're going to try and make it kind of deeply unpleasant <laughs> in some ways and kind of bring some of that 70s realness to it, which I think has to be a real challenge to both of them, particularly like De Niro, who's coming from that method, that kind of real kind of like street level approach, then be saying, yeah, we're going to try something that's really kind of like high cinema stuff. Yeah, I think it's interesting the idea, right, isn't it, of comfort and challenge. And I mm. think the thing that sort of combines the two of those is inspiration mm-hmm. yeah. and maybe like people finding their muse or someone who really represents kind of them, but not because mm-hmm. I think, you know, Scorsese channels so much of himself into De Niro and that they do sort of match each other. And I think actually there's something similar happening between Greta Gerwig and Saoirse Ronan. Mm. oh yeah yeah i think Absolutely. that's right i think that's sort of starting to come through and adam driver and noah baumbach i think as well is sort of mm. there's that there but but that idea of like the comforting thing is that you always have an idea with this person but the challenging thing is that oh you have a different idea yeah and that's where the kind of risk and reward is sort of the balance and i think about um i mean just because i absolutely love cassavetes and jenna rollins is just utterly just the the best like actress that we you know who's still alive (laughs) right now i Mm. think even though she's maybe not working quite so much but like all of her performances are just like you do not see the seams in the acting she's just like completely inhabiting those roles and i and i and i look at a lot of kind of husband and wife collaborations like my favorite Giulietta messina and um federico fellini Mm. oh yeah yeah and how he found her like, you know, because she's not in all of his films, but the films that he made together are some of his like most famous. And what he saw in her in this kind of like sort of childlike and knowing, but kind of fall from grace and kind of both of her characters in like La Strada and Knights of um, Caribbean are sort of essentially like very pure people who had done dirty by the world. And I always think, God, I wonder what their relationships were like, just like day to day. Like to make mm. like this incredible art. Like you look at um 
woman under the influence or faces for example and then what do you just kind of like call it a day and then go home and eat bolognese or do you, do you know what I mean? like I always just think what is it like but I wonder whether sometimes those kind of romantic relationships or marriages give you that mix where it's like your personal relationship and, and you know matrimony or whatever is what is is the comfort and then but at work you challenge each other and that's part of the attraction mm. and I think like that is that's kind of something that kind of undergirds a lot of these kind of like situations where you know a director will have kind of like a big pool of actors that they were like working with a lot it's like there's that sense of like they're building their own family essentially and some cases like that they are literally like <laughs> you're working with the person that you are married to or that you're romantically re- uh, involved with and i think yeah it is fascinating to think about those kind of collaborations and whether or not they could sour because you know like um this you must remember this obviously had their big polyplat season this year which was absolutely yes. essential listening oh, and so much of that yeah so much of that it, uh particularly sort of the, like the first half is about how much polyplat you know was such an integral part of peter bogdanovich's creative process you know during the early years of his career she would help him write the scripts she would be hugely involved in finding locations she was essentially a producer on all of his movies but not credited as such and how you know as he got success and he got the credit for it that kind of fed into the strains in their marriage which obviously you know were exacerbated by the fact he ended up having an affair with Sybil Shepherd. but like you mm. could definitely see that the way she challenged him and his ideas was like a key part of what made those movies great you know what made Paper Moon and The Last Picture Show two of the like the great movies of the 70s is that it wasn't just him being allowed to follow his own ideas to their fullest ex- uh, extent it was that she was there the whole way pushing back and saying like why don't we try this why don't we try this or throwing her own ideas in and i think that is the sort of thing that again kind of to put it on the uh, comfort challenge spectrum that is kind of like a nice melding of both in that clearly they had the comfort of they were two people who were married and clearly you know like massively attracted to each other and you know had this kind of like family life but when it came to their work they were like totally willing and able to kind of like have those kind of discussions where they were pushing backwards and forwards and giving and taking in a, in a major way for sure and i think against collaborations and and rep is that more often than not this all sort of happens behind the scenes and it's actually produce mm. producing teams who yeah. um really bring that forward in the the one that springs immediately to my mind is Kathleen Kennedy mm, yeah. and uh, working with Spielberg and with Lucas and setting up Amblin, like, but, and then she and Frank Marshall are together. Of course, they've been mm. married for over 30 years. And that kind of rolling with the punches and carrying on making stuff. And, you know, actually a really incredible hit rate. <laughs> Kathleen Kennedy mm. and that lot. Don't know if you are all familiar with a little, a little guy, a little film called Jurassic Park. But then, yeah. But what we tend to see and what is kind of codified in film law and cinephilia is generally between directors and actors. Mm, yeah, or you know, very, very occasionally you will hear of like you'll 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 get like a Thelma Shoemaker and Scorsese where their her her role as an editor because they've worked together on so many movies at this point and she's so 
rightly venerated as like one of the all-time great editors and you know she has helped she has been instrumental in making so many great movies with him and he is so perfectly like you know willing to give her all the credit as well you know there's none of that kind of like oh you know like editors it's like a, it's more of a technical job or whatever like he fully acknowledges like yeah she's she's great at what she does and she and i work together implicitly that you know you kind of get things like that where one of the other roles in film production kind of gets highlighted but yeah i think scorsese is quite interesting that because he does have so many of those relationships where he clearly enjoys working with the same people over and over again like obviously you know de niro harvey keitel uh robert richardson who like shoots most of his movies as well more recently obviously uh leonardo dicaprio like he, he i think he is someone who really seems to enjoy fostering those kind of relationships and i and even like the ones that i think seem very fraught like his uh frequent collaborations with paul schrader which um seem to be you know have resulted in some uh, absolutely incredible movies uh, but you know it seemed to be very much two guys particularly taxi driver who were very much on the edge at that point in their mm, careers yeah, yeah. <laughs> very um living by the seat of their pants and uh seemingly <laughs> headed for early deaths you know kind of like creating this like great work together and then maybe you know having to drift apart for 20 something years before they can work together again on bringing uh bringing out the dead or whatever like like he seems to be someone who even as he has you know, gotten older and kind of settled down and become less of a coke fiend. You know, he is. He seems to really still enjoy finding like new people to collaborate with, and I think that's kind of like, one of the things that. And I think that's why his collaborations with Leonardo DiCaprio have kind of been so vital for his career. Even if you know, I don't like every movie that they've made together, and right. I feel like you know, the the certainly Gangs of New York, there was that sense of like he's probably a little miscast for this role. Like it doesn't doesn't quite come yeah. together having a new person kind of to throw into the mix to bounce ideas off of clearly has been like really revitalizing for him as a filmmaker Mm, sure i think that kind of the sort of nerves and things makes um just immediately makes me think of the coen brothers Mm -hmm. and of course that's that's another kind of like family business because obviously francis mcdormand's been in what eight of their films and uh yes, yes. She, she's of course married married um to one of them it's just amazing the coen brothers being like that anxious all the time and i i love it when they just go like lean fully in <laughs> to their anxiety which is why i think a simple man is my favorite of all of this um i'm oh, sorry mm. a serious man i was getting blood simple and um, a serious man confused in my head there a serious man a simple man different whole different story but uh and i'm looking forward to seeing like I think the Safdie brothers might be sort of mm, move, yeah. move, moving into that in the sort of like more modern kind of concerns and of and like I'd love to see them just make loads more films with Adam Sandler. <laughs> yeah, considering that they've got uh, two so far, the uh, Uncut Gems obviously, but also their their little short they did with him immediately afterwards. Oh yeah, of course, uh, yeah. Goldman versus Silverman, I think, which is uh, a delightful sort of sad weird little movie they shot on uh you know on the street in times square yeah <laughs> which is uh such a, a delightful thing to do and yeah presumably they'll have to wait until uh they can go outside and like do stuff again because <laughs> yeah. they're, they're very street level uh, filmmakers but also in terms of their collaborations like um 
I think their their relationship with uh, Ronald Brownstein, who's co-written a lot of their movies, is really fascinating as well, where he was like a filmmaker that they met. He, I want to say he worked as like the projectionist at Film Forum in 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 New York uh-huh. or Lincoln Center, whichever, but they may be the same thing. I'm not, I'm not great on my New York theaters. I apologize to people for not knowing every New York cinema. Um, but he was like a guy that they met, they cast him in one of his movies, in one of their movies in Daddy Longlegs. And since then they've been like, they've just constantly written movies with him and consulted with him. And so much of their career seems to boil down to them like hanging out in the projection booth at Lincoln Center and talking to him and working over scripts and that's the kind of like really intense creative collaboration that I find like really really fascinating especially where it's literally like you know every spare second they have they're like trying to come up with ideas and sitting there and um, bothering him at his job it seems Mm. (laughs) based on on that situation I try try to think of like the extremes again of like comfort versus challenge Mm -hmm. I think I think maybe the the one that came to mind for me is like the most comfortable is like you look at like the last handful of movies that Howard Hawks made where he essentially was making the same movies over and over again with John Wayne whereas like Rio Bravo they did Rio Lobo and then uh, another one that I forget where it's essentially he, he basically says like yeah we just wanted to like hang out and make movies really like him so <laughs> we're just gonna make movies together and have a nice time and then challenge i think you know the gold standard probably has to be herzog and kinski oh where... god yeah <laughs> fuck where um they on multiple occasions tried to murder each other but uh you know they got good work out of it yeah yeah my best fiend of course probably mm-hmm. yeah notorious i wonder if that's part of it though like the comfort is that it's challenge all the time yeah, certainly for Herzog, who, you know, when he talks about his, like, you know, his his uh, film school that he used to do, where, you know, he'd be like, okay, you have to make your way to the middle of a desert and, you know, we'll make a movie together, but you can only use, like, tin cans or something, you know, right. where he clearly he would find, he'd probably be very anxious if he was in a comfortable situation. He would, he would much rather be in a situation where things can go horribly wrong, which, yeah, probably ties into like some of his working techniques like i know that he really hates uh storyboards like he doesn't uh-huh. storyboard any of his movies which is incredible to think of when you think about like the shots in like aguirre and things like that mm. but like he's clearly someone who values the danger of spontaneity which is something that can be like really deadly to a film shoot if things go horribly wrong but that I think under underpins a lot of his relationship with Kinski and a lot of their collaborations. That sense of, you know, he may we may end up killing each other, but we'll we'll produce some indelible images. Mm. Another example I had of someone who I think really thrives on working with the same people over again is Pedro Almodovar, who yeah. Yeah. has at least three major. Or four, because obviously his brother, his who produces all his movies, is also kind of a key part of his creative process. But um, he, three actors that he enjoys working with over and over: Antonio Banderas, of course, who he he essentially helped kind of like break out into the broader film world through some of his early movies, and then they've come back and worked together multiple times since. Carmen Mora, who is in a load of his early movies, and uh, I think last worked with him on Volbert, although if, if they could have worked together since, I'm forgetting something. Uh, and Penelope Cruz, who mm. also was kind of like someone who 
really broke through in some of his early movies alongside open your eyes but you, uh, where i think in all those he really seems to delight in working with them over and over but also in like each time trying to give them something new to do and i think there is something you, you talked about inspiration earlier i think there's also something about exploration when you talk about actors and directors working together where each sometimes you know you want to do the john wayne howard hawks thing where you want to do the comfortable thing but sometimes you're like okay we're gonna work together we're going to do something entirely different to what we did before and we're going to see what happens and i think almodovar particularly like his 80s and 90s work like he seemed to really get a kick out of doing that sort of stuff of really trying to push himself and his actors beyond what they had done previously for sure i was just thinking back to what i said ed in terms of of women collaborating together and a few have mm. have with the aid of me sort of uh prompting from from my notes and a quick search of the internet i'm like oh wait nora efron and meg ryan mm. uh, oh, yeah, yeah. sophia coppola and kirsten dunst and possibly my favorite kelly reichardt and michelle williams oh yeah there's yeah god their work together is absolutely incredible right like really sort of stately and immediate like directly affecting sort of filmmaking mm. and again i think there's this kind of like slightly sort of muse ish thing going on i think particularly with sophia coppola and kirsten dunce because i think there's a real kind of i mean in terms of how sort of iconic the images are of kirsten dunce from the virgin suicides and marie antoinette and yet i feel like they're strongly a sort of like the female gaze of like mm-hmm. of almost like a girl crush like there's yeah. there's something sexual about them but not in a possessive way and there's a real kind of being met on the same kind of line somehow like very very much a wave a same wavelength thing mm, yeah i can totally see that particularly if you're looking at their collaborations and that sense of you know, Sophia Coppola maybe being one of the first filmmakers to really understand the potential of Kirsten Dunst, where it's not just like, you know, she was like a child prodigy because she was like fantastic in Interview with the Vampire and things like that. There's that real sense of someone seeing someone thinking, I think you can do more, which I think is uh, an incredibly validating thing to say to someone as an actor and the sort of thing that you know, would drive them to kind of keep working together, you know, as much as they could and would deliver, I think, some of their some of their best uh, best work. Mm. Considering the conversations that we've had in the past, I can't believe it's just getting to talking about him now, but obviously David Lynch yeah. is someone who I think <laughs> has um, one of the best rep crews, rep, rep uh, companies in cinema, um, although uh, some of them have now passed on. But you know, like if you look at him, like working with Jack Nance in pretty much everything from uh, Eraserhead up until he passed away, where you know, like there's that real sense of of loyalty and of feeling like he connected with him in some kind of like deep primordial way, mm. where he's casting him in. You know, obviously Eraserhead was like you know kind of this really intense, surreal you know kind of nightmarish work and then also he's like yeah and you can play like a soldier in dune sure (laughs) where it's like he keeps bringing him back for these sort of things and then obviously through twin peaks and 
his subsequent work with, with obviously Carl McLaughlin, another one where he kind of like works with him on multiple occasions and where he really seems to view him as something of an avatar for himself in some ways. I think there's something really fascinating in seeing how he has built this kind of like big crew of people around him and you know kind of obviously collaborators as well where he clearly really enjoys spending time with them and bouncing ideas off of them and then just being like okay i want you to do i want you to say this absolutely wild thing that doesn't make sense to anyone but me but i assure you if you say it in this particular weird way uh it will be utterly transfixing when I edit it all together and, you know, him clearly having a lot of trust in his actors and them having a lot of trust in him as well. Absolutely. Uh, and then uh, another one, uh, I can't believe it's taking this long to mention him, but obviously uh, Paul Thomas Anderson oh, I think yeah. is an interesting example of someone who uh, you know, had that kind of like certainly in his early films, you know, he had his actors that he liked to return to over and over again like uh, Philip Baker Hall and John C. Riley. And Philip Seymour Hoffman, obviously, who he kind of, you know, drew upon multiple times and each time kind of was giving them very different things to do. If you talk about John C. Riley in in Hard Eight slash Sydney, where he's kind of this aspiring kind of like low life to, you know, him in Boogie Nights, where he's like the, the most bouncy sidekick <laughs> imaginable you'd want to to work in your porn movies. And then, you know, as uh, the cop that he plays in, magnolia they're like such wildly different roles each time and mm. clearly paul thomas anderson enjoyed working with those actors over and over and trying to give them different things to do each time and to really kind of like push them but then you know if you're talking about his uh, evolution as a filmmaker i think you do kind of like you look at there will be blood and pretty much none of his regular people were in it he obviously had his regular uh, cinematographer Robert Ellswit, who was his, who had shot like his other movies, and I think uh, his regular director as well, uh, regular editor as well. But you know, like you could really see there him kind of trying to challenge himself in a way of being like, okay, I'm going to take myself away from my the people that I'm comfortable working with and try something kind of different. And uh, obviously, working out pretty well for him in terms of putting him in the the echelons of kind of like the modern greats. Yeah, and I think obviously it's really touching that even though Philip Seymour Hoffman's no longer with us in his what PTA is currently shooting features Hoffman's son, mm, and I think yeah. there's something that comes forward in that kind of loyalty, and I think it's interesting how after his first few films that I think were really obviously massive in terms of scale and ensemble mm. and reach that PTA for the past few films has gone back to kind of like again these intense one-on-one -on -one relationships that mm. I think are yeah. sort of telling in terms of himself <laughs> and that he is really interested in the idea of you know creativity and, and family mm. and yeah. what constitutes a family and that in Boogie Nights, for example, they're much more of a family and they understand each other so much better than the family in Punch Drunk Love. And mm. how Magnolia, everyone's so kind of interwoven with each other, even if they don't realise it. And what kind of the connections that then come from that. And I think, 
Pierre PTA is someone who kind of, well, he's quite a kaleidoscopic director in that he seems to pick randomly. Like when you summarize a PTA film, like I remember when Phantom Thread was announced and it was like a film set within the fashion world of the 50s you know, in post-war Britain, I was like, wild. And then, of course, it's like, well, it's, it is and it isn't about that at all. <laughs> and that he keeps kind of shifting his gaze on sort of whatever seems to interest him at the time. And yet these threads keep coming through. And that he does have, I think he truly has a real cast of players that he shifts through as well. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if John C. Riley popped up in something soon. Yeah, he would be a good fit for this, like, 1970s set. A high school movie that he's working on. I don't know if he is in it, but like when you you say, oh yeah, if you wanted someone to play like a befuddled teacher or something in a seventies high school movie, he would be a pretty good choice. So we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes with shot reverse shot recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed. We think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Well, I hope you don't mind, Ed, but it's me plugging something of my own. Uh, <sighs> And seeming as I am on this podcast with you, maybe there are some people listening who would be interested in listening to me on a different podcast. And it is the podcast that I am making with my dear friend, Anna Burt. Um, We are called The Mother of All Losses. And it is about Anna and I exploring our own grief um, after the death of our mums, but also having guests on who've, um, who are going through their own journey in terms of grieving their maternal figure and uh, we're a couple of episodes in now you can find us on twitter instagram hopefully we should be on all good uh podcast platforms but if we're not come get in touch with me and i'll see what we can do but yeah we try to go for things that are moving and uplifting and just busting the taboo of grief and bringing it back into a kind of public space so that's me and Anna on The Mother of All Losses is my recommendation, shameless plug pulled. What about you, Ed? <laughs> mm, I, I'm i going to recommend a, a movie that I watched yesterday that I had been putting off because I knew it would get me very, very angry. And it did. <laughs> but uh, I kind of figured... I, I, I kind of wanted to watch it after the election because I feel like if I watched it before the election, it would just get me so much more anxious and angry. And so now I'm just angry but less anxious, uh, which is Totally Under Control, the new documentary by Alex Gibney about the horrifically botched response of the United States government to the coronavirus pandemic. It's a movie that doesn't necessarily reveal a huge amount new particularly if you've been following the events of the coronavirus and the the government's response to it but it's very clarifying in terms of very methodically laying out the case of how badly the federal government responded to it how they didn't take advantage of the resources that they had they didn't take advantage of the expertise that was available they didn't take advantage of the plans that had been left or that had been sketched out and the ideas that were out there about how to respond to a pandemic with the resources that they had how the appointment of people who were not experts about science but you know were put there for political beliefs or because of their religious beliefs hampered the response and it's i think you know we've been living with this pandemic now for close to, for eight, eight months certainly for me but obviously for a lot of other people for, for longer 
and I found it to be incredibly clarifying in terms of just how badly this situation has been mishandled, how much death was needless, and Alex Gibney, who I think is an extremely hit-or-miss filmmaker, I think the uh, amount of documentaries he makes and the speed at which he works does not necessarily serve them well, but this feels like a really good combination of subject matter and artist in that you know he is very good at telling stories with tremendous energy and clarity and this is the sort of thing where you know if you're talking about what happened from january to sort of april may of this year like the real crucial period for when the federal government could have done something to you know ameliorate everything that's happened then it's a real kind of like good fit for his approach and I think it's, you know, very helpful if you want to watch something to understand how badly this, the, the pandemic has gotten here and why and who, who is responsible for it. And I, I just think that, you know, if you want to watch something that will make you feel like you just want to keep smashing stuff, <laughs> then uh, it's a good watch. And <laughs> I think it's very, um, yeah, I think it's just a very good snapshot of the current situation that we are all in that, you know, I think for years to come will probably serve as, like, a really good thing to show to be able to explain how we got into this situation. So that is totally under control by Alex Gibney in the US. Uh, it's currently air on Hulu, where I think they have the exclusive rights to it, and I want to say it's on the BBC iPlayer currently. I think it, it played on the iPlayer for a little bit, so um, seek it out. I'm sure it'll be fairly easy to find if you want to just kind of, like, hold your head in your hands at just the sheer incompetence of the trump administration while we only have uh, you know 10 more weeks to worry about it if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fm spotify all the usual places raters reviewers and recommend it to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next time with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me